Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Krauss, Licensed Professional Counselor. In today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Michael Collins, who is the author of a new book called All Bleeding Stops. A little bit about his background. Dr. Michael Collins spent several years working as a construction laborer, truck driver, cab driver, and dock worker trying to get into medical school. After completing his residency at the Mayo Clinic, where he served as chief resident in orthopedic surgery, Dr. Collins and his wife moved back home to Chicago, where they and most of their grown 12 children still live. He has lectured extensively on topics relating to medicine and writing. In writing this book that we're speaking of today, Dr. Collins hopes to raise awareness of the difficulty doctors face in learning to care without caring too much. The very qualities, compassion, sensitivity, and dedication that often lead young people to a career in medicine often make it difficult for them to reconcile their ideals with the cold, hard reality of morbidity and mortality, conditions no amount of caring can ever change. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Dr. Michael Collins today on the Intentional Clinician Podcast. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with somebody you know. I'd surely appreciate it. And welcoming to the show, Dr. Michael Collins. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Absolutely. I'm very excited to speak with you as you have a lot of experiences, uh, not only in the field of medicine, but just in life that are very diverse. And I think there's a lot there to talk about. And of course, we're going to be highlighting your new book, All Bleeding Stops, which is, I believe, your first fictional book that you've released, uh, while your other couple of books were uh, more biographical. Um, so. Yes, I I think people will really like this book. In our field, a lot of the listeners are doctors and psychologists and counselors, and so you're speaking to um, you know your peers and of course some people that just are interested in this sort of subject material. So uh, I wanted to maybe just give the listeners. I know I did read your bio, but I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of your story as much as you're willing to share, and how maybe that led to inspiring some of the subject matter. Of this. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So where, where should we start? You know, I, I, I read, there's some so interesting mm-hmm. things about your struggle to get into medical school. Um, and then of course, becoming the chief resident of orthopedic surgery. Um, but yeah, if you could maybe tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I was a typical immature male. Um, I went through college uh, never bothering to ask myself the questions that most sensible people would ask themselves about, what do I want to be when I grew up? Uh, I was a hockey player, um, not not good enough to ever have any future in professional hockey, but uh, I had a nice time in college and all of a sudden I graduated and didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, so I worked construction for a couple of years. Uh, and the construction work was uh, enjoyable. I mean, it was very hard physical work, but I was young and strong. That was great. But it, at some point, I finally started to ask myself questions that all my friends had asked themselves years before. What do I want to be? And I thought about different things and I finally came up with medicine, but I had not taken any pre-med courses. So I had to go back and take two years of pre-med courses while I was working on truck docks and driving cabs and those sort of things. And and looking back now, it 
really does seem almost like a miracle that I got into med school. Uh, you know, I, my college grades were decent and I did very well on the pre-med courses that I took, but I certainly wasn't the most attractive candidate. I think I was probably the last person in my class admitted to uh, med school. I it was admitted a week before classes started. Um, so, uh, and then I got into med school. My, my second book actually um, is called Blue Collar, Blue Scrubs, and that tells the story of those days, a construction worker trying to get into med school. Uh, then I went to Loyola Med School in Chicago, uh, then went to um, the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, was there for five years. Uh, and during that time, I had a growing family and didn't have much, my residents weren't paid much in those days. So I did a lot of moonlighting. And my uh, first book, even though it was written in backwards fashion, but the first book uh, is called Hot Lights, Cold Steel. And that was about being a moonlighting resident at the Mayo Clinic. And then when I left Mayo, I came right to a suburb of Chicago where I've lived ever since. Wonderful. Yes, I'm. I'm I, you have quite a interesting background because you're right. A lot of doctors do come right out of uh, pre-med programs and in the bachelor's programs and, and you took some time there to get in and you have some life experiences there. And I understand um, that you have done a lot of public speaking as well. I have. As I... Um, after I wrote my first two books, one of the reasons that I wrote them is I'm a big proponent and supporter of uh, the practice of medicine. I have greatly enjoyed my career, and I think it's a wonderful career for young people to pursue. Uh, and medicine gets a lot of bad publicity in part and from it from itself. A lot of doctors uh, are unhappy with medicine, and there certainly are some problems with it now. But I don't know the exact statistics, but somewhere around 60 or 80 or something percent of doctors in some survey said they would not recommend their own children go into medicine, which always shocked me because I just think somewhere they're missing the boat. Uh, I loved practicing medicine and I encourage people to do it. So uh, my books have that flavor. Uh, even All Bleeding Stops, the last one, which is somewhat darker than the first two, but still I think readers will come away with a feeling that practicing medicine is a good thing. Yes, excellent. We definitely need doctors that are motivated by the passion of healing people um, and people that really can find a way to avoid burnout. Uh, I think those are some some things so that people don't feel like they don't want to recommend it to their own children, which you know, we've heard lots of stories of how things can get in hospitals and certain clinics and uh, the demands yeah. of managed care system can really wreak havoc. So it's important to have a doctor such as yourself going around and explaining the positive, the joys of, of working and, and being a doctor, uh, because we definitely need some, we definitely need a lot of good doctors here in the U S. Um, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about the book because I think that kind of hits one of your main themes. Um, so, all Bleeding Stops is a, a story about a, uh, basically a medic who who is deployed in Vietnam. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. I guess, I'm sorry, a combat surgeon. Yeah. Um, first of all, let me explain the title a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, those of your listeners who are in the surgical field will have heard that expression before. It's uh, an example of sort of the dark humor that doctors often employ. Uh, and the 
the situation arises in medicine where the doctor's operating on somebody and the person's bleeding a lot and the doctor's doing his best to try and stop bleeding. And some wise guy will say, uh, well, all bleeding stops, uh, which of course it does. Uh, we want it to stop because we stop it, not because the heart stops beating. Um, so there's a, an ironic sort of a twist to the title. Uh, and I liked it, especially because the main character, Matthew Barrett, who was a young doctor, in many sense of, of the word, is bleeding throughout the novel. Uh, he's he's an example of um, the kind of young guy who goes into medicine because he is sincere and sensitive and motivated, but is emotionally unprepared to handle the fact that doctors can't cure everything. Uh, that, that they see some terrible things and some doctors learn to adjust to it and uh, uh, let it pass and others don't. And he's an example of one who had a hard time trying to accept the harsh realities of life. Yes, absolutely. And so, like you said, he was having a hard time accepting the harsh realities of life. And um, so there's this, there's the trauma of war already. So that's direct and then we have vicarious trauma. I can imagine being a combat surgeon at, at war. Then you're dealing with the casualties or the injuries of war. Um, can you explain kind of a little bit about the uh, how that uh, can affect someone's psyche and kind of how it ex affected the, the protagonist uh, in this book? Well, so protagonist came to... Um... Vietnam. He was drafted, as many people were back in those days. By the way, I did not serve in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. uh, I was old enough to, but uh, they had a draft system, and my number was high, so I didn't get drafted. But I talked to a great many people who did serve in Vietnam, uh, surgeons and just guys on the front lines. Um, most of the people who went to Vietnam, including the protagonists of this book, didn't want to be there. Um, they were not thrilled about it. I think. Uh, early on in the Vietnam experience, there was a feeling, um, which I think I'm ad adequately or uh, um, accurately displaying the tenor of the times, but people went into Vietnam at first thinking that this was a good idea, that, you know, the generation before us had to stop Hitler and that we were somehow obligated to stop communism, that it, if we didn't do something, it would spread all over and everyone would be enslaved. It turned out that those ideas were a little bit uh, naive, uh, but it was a, a time of great conflict for the nation and also for the individuals who served there, uh, wanting to do their part, but worrying, is this, is this the right way that I'm doing it? And so Matthew Barrett wanted to be a surgeon. He didn't really want to be a combat surgeon, um, but he was very well prepared, for, came out of a good residency program and came to Vietnam wanting to do his best. And... There's no dipping your toe into that kind of medicine. I mean, there are terrible injuries that occur uh, from people with guns and bombs and all the rest of it. And so Matthew came armed well um, with his knowledge of how to be a surgeon and things to do, but not so well armed emotionally to deal with the terrible things that he was going to see. And the fact that despite his best intentions, he was not going to save every soldier who was before him on his operating table. And he just couldn't handle that. And so, and, and not to give away too much of the book, but one of the themes I'm seeing is what you kind of touched on a little bit is, is the sensitivity and compassion 
for his patients was was so great, which was an excellent quality, right? Yet it was debilitating for him. Uh, yeah, it was. And I, I kind of contrast several characters in the book to try and bring that out. Uh, one of the other surgeons who worked with him, uh, Mac was his name, who was also a combat surgeon, had none of these problems. Um, he was a good surgeon and he was not uncaring or unfeeling, but he didn't let anything get through to him. Uh, the fact that Patients came to him suffering and dying. If he helped them, he thought that was fine. If he didn't help them, that's fine too. And none of this is his fault. And, um, he says at one point, we didn't pull the trigger. We didn't start the war. We're just janitors cleaning up other people's messes. Um, so he dealt with it by deflecting it all and letting it all bounce off him. Um, there's another character, Denis, uh, or Dennis, who uh, learned somehow to balance caring and sensitivity without giving too much of himself. One of the impetus, impetuses that led me to write this book was um, when I was a senior in med school, I was on a cardiology service at one of the local veterans administration's hospital, and the intern on our service committed suicide. Uh, and that, from that moment on, I think that's what opened my eyes to, and I didn't know him real well, but, and it wasn't strictly that, that his, and, and how do I know for sure? How does anyone but uh, it awoke in me uh, um, the realization that a lot of doctors go into medicine sensitive and in fact, overly sensitive and that their sensitivity uh, can be a detriment rather than an asset. We, all, we want our doctors to be sensitive and we want them to be caring and compassionate, but it's hard to turn it off and turn it on. And that's the point of the book to sort of explore the issue of how does a doctor learn to care without caring so much that it destroys it. Mm. Yes, exactly. And um, doctors do have a decently high suicide rate for for the profession. I'm not exactly sure what the statistic is on that. Are you familiar? Yeah, doctors uh, commit suicide about at an average about twice what the normal uh, suicide rate is for the U.S. population. And you would think that you would expect the opposite because generally they don't have the same financial difficulties as the average person does. Uh, three to 400 physicians kill themselves in the United States every year, which is, uh, you know, to put it in perspective, that's, that's twice as many people as graduated in my med school class. Um, so, and, and I'm not suggesting that all physicians who commit suicide do it because they're overly sensitive. You know, there's drug issues and there's burnout issues and there's all sort of things. That, but at least a part of it is the mindset that draws people to medicine is one of vulnerability. And that vulnerability can sometimes uh, come into play when they're faced with the, more, the, the realities of morbidity and mortality. Yeah, seeing so much uh, death and, you know, disease and day after day can really break into somebody's psyche and of course being in the mental health field um you know it, it's incredible because a lot of therapists and counselors if they well i guess it's up to them it's a bit easier to have a work-life balance but if you're a doctor people you are the person everybody goes to where's the doctor we need the doctor get the doctor's opinion get the doctor for surgery and so there's so much pressure i mean I, I, that's not the only reason right but there's so much pressure on the doctor that i wonder if it's hard to take time to to work on their own health 
um, you know, sometimes or their own mental health. There's that saying by Hippocrates, I believe, that said, uh, uh, I can't really speak Latin, but essentially it said, physician, heal thyself, right? Like start working yeah. on yourself and you'll be able to heal others better was kind of the point I think he was making or one of the points. And um, and I think that would be great. But I, but as you're, you've been a doctor and there's, it's a, there, you know, there's a lot of demands that, that come in a lot of responsibility and especially in a hospital or in a war zone, it's life or death responsibility. And so I think that can really have a heavy burden on somebody's uh, mind and their uh, psyche. So I'm glad that you're bringing this to light and talking about this, but I mean, you're also making the point that this sensitivity that the some doctors have like you know the other character you know he he was able to contextualize and not let it in as much he was able to sort of keep saying well this isn't you know i'm just doing my best i'm not, i'm not you know we didn't start this i'm not responsible but in some people who have more of empathic tendencies and feel very personally connected uh, to their patients even more uh, can be very detrimental in terms of some of their mental health but what i'm seeing here is you also made the point throughout the book of eventually this sensitivity was not just a weakness, but an asset. Can you kind of explain that a little bit? Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because that is through much of the book, I explore the issues of how uh, Matthew's sensitivity hurt him. Um, but the end of the book, and as you and I talked about earlier, I, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the ending is, I hope most readers will find it uplifting, um, that there's a suggestion that, you know, that a life well lived uh, or virtue is its own reward, that sort of thing, that uh, he spent his life trying to do what he thought was best and he suffered greatly because of it. But there is uh, the feeling that, that having done the right thing is uh, a justification. And I think at the end of the book, that comes out. Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, I agree that. I agree with that completely. Um, so yes, I think that, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the book, which is why we're kind of talking yeah. obtusely about it. I think this yeah. is, you know, reading a book is an experience, just as like watching a film is an experience. And I think people really need to get into the characters in the novel to fully see it. But it's a could it's a it's a wonderful way of of illustrating points that are relevant to the humanity of us that we all have, and especially those in any sort of helping profession, especially in this extreme example, somebody who's on the battlefield um, day after day. Um, I think a so, lot of that is goes in all areas of medicine. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I do a lot of uh, public speaking, often to medical students and to uh, pre-med students. And one of the things that I say to him, and I, this sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I really mean it, that I think I learned more about being a good doctor from William Butler Yeats and Shakespeare and Virginia Woolf than I did from all the um, treatises and texts that I read. Now, obviously, if you're going to be a surgeon, you better know your anatomy. So I'm not <laughs> suggesting that, that some of the med school courses are not important, but um it's, it's not that difficult to learn those things. I mean, it's hard and it takes time, and, but you can learn your anatomy and you can learn physiology and pharmacology, but how do you teach someone to be compassionate? And how do you teach someone 
to be compassionate, but not overly compassionate. And there, I don't really have an answer to those things other than the feeling that that the that it's worth the effort. That give you put your heart and soul into something and do the best you can. Yes, absolutely. And 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 that sounds like a not just a job; it's a calling. Um, yeah, almost. I think it is, and it's you know it's the difference between a job and a vocation sort of thing. Um, and I don't mean to you know uh, blow the horn of doctors that somehow were different or better than anyone else. I think these sort of issues apply to people in all walks of life. It's just more noticeable and and it's harder to avoid in a doctor's life. Um, you know, all the things that we tend to try and hide from in our lives, the fact that we're mortal and the fact that we're going to be sick and the fact that uh, all the things that we see now that seem so great are transient and transitory and will not be here forever. Nobody likes to think about those things. It, it's a little harder for doctors to ignore it than it is other people because it, I remember one time one a friend of mine who was a lawyer said something to me about, had I ever seen a dead body? You know, and now we've all seen them at wakes or funerals, but I said, well, I've seen a lot of dead bodies. Not that it's a wonderful thing, but it just, most people don't see dead bodies. They don't see death. Uh, they don't see people dying. Uh, and and yet we all know that it's coming. Yes, it's true. And there is, there is, in, in the case of physicians, it's almost like a, I don't, I'm not trying to theorize on air, but it's a little bit, it's almost like an overexposure, right? And, and, and when you, in mental health, when you're exposed to something over and over and over, there are ways it can desensitize you, but there's other ways where it actually really gets in to your psyche in a way mm -hmm. that is difficult to deal with. And, and because in some ways, like you said, people don't see dead bodies and, and in a way, sometimes when something tragic happens in the community, some for some people, that's a wake-up call to how have I been living? What should I be doing? Yeah. What's really important to me, yeah. right? If, if life is, you know, if we're like a, a plant that grows and eventually blooms and then has a decline and then we rejoin the soil and we're, we're part of nature just like that, what am I doing with this job? What am I doing with that? So it can be existentially useful, but I, I wonder about the frequency with which doctors um, see these things. And I guess I've been hearing uh, anecdotal stories about, uh, well, obviously people in the emergency room and the ICU see this sort of thing all the time, but during the COVID, uh, main point of COVID crisis in the last year, 2020, um, how a lot of ICU nurses and doctors were just so upset and just devastated and going through major depression, just seeing so many people die in a short time span in a way that they didn't feel that they could fully help them. Uh, and I can just imagine the weight of that versus, you know, it's easier. Oh, well, they got in a car accident. I, you know, that's terrible. We couldn't do it, but we did our best. Right. But here's this virus causing people who might even be, have been healthy a few weeks before to just not be able to breathe, you know? Um, so I, I think it's, it's like that there's a balance of that that dark reality that we have to face, but also the the importance, like you said, of of finding doctors who are ready and want to to serve and are connected to something. Like you said, Yeats and uh, you know poetry, philosophy, these sort of things. Getting connected to something um, like having some sort of philosophy can help you come out of just the materialism. Okay, 
here's this person, here's their body. Like you got to know that stuff, but you know, is there a purpose here? Is there a meaning? And without meaning, you know, people really have a hard time. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that I wanted readers to think about as they read this book. Um, Matthew is a sympathetic character, and I think everybody reads the book kind of wants Matthew to succeed and and feels bad when he feels bad. But it's a, in a sense, it's a journey. I suppose he's he's trying to learn how to deal with uh, the issues that life has presented to him. I never really use the word, but as a psychologist, you'll you'll be aware that I mean, really, it's, we're talking about PTSD uh, for much of what happened to Matthew. He just um, he was exposed to these terrible things and suffered greatly uh, from them, very much as soldiers do. In fact, I in a second I'll just read you the the uh, dedication to the book. I say, like soldiers, the things we doctors see and do are often too much to bear. And like soldiers, some of our wounds never heal. Uh, that's the affinity between doctors and soldiers is what in, in great part made me choose Vietnam as the setting for this book is because there's all the, the conflict and uncertainty, uh, the exposure to terrible things that we would rather not deal with. Uh, so there are, even though their vocations are quite different, there's a lot of similarities between the experience of the doctor in war and the soldier in war. Yeah, that's a very good point. And um, yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder and any sort of thing that's on the spectrum of that, which is sort of kind of a new way of looking at things that there maybe somebody doesn't have the full criteria, right? But they they have an, they have enough symptoms to sort of say we could have a traumatic experience can really be debilitating. And yeah, I think you know, in, in the book, you know, he's got intrusive thoughts, you know, he's got uh, flashbacks and these sort of things. And, um, and, and what can happen in that sense is that people can feel like they're out of control and that they, you know, their mind is getting away from them. And I, I, we've seen that with combat veterans, but it's a very good point that doctors in, whether they're at war or in the hospital can have the very same, you know, something like post-traumatic stress disorder or a traumatic event inflicting them. And then they're still going out there and trying to serve, which is just so difficult when you, I mean, when I've seen, you know, luckily there's more and more treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder coming out uh, in the, in the counseling world that are, are making a decent impact. But, you know, if you don't catch it soon uh, and, and it kind of starts to set in. And, and I guess what I mean by that is that the neural neural pathways are continuing to, spin on the same, you know, traumatic event or flashback or whatever, yeah. people can get really sick, not only physically, but uh, mentally depression, anxiety, and you name it can come on board. Yeah, that, and then you throw in uh, the alcoholism thing that uh, traditionally soldiers tend to drown their sorrows. Uh, and if you start with PTSD and mix in a lot of alcohol or drugs or whatever, that you really have a difficult situation. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, it's a harrowing, harrowing profession to be sure. Um, I was just curious, do, do you have any, a personal story maybe that of something that during your career changed your perspective about, uh, medicine in a way that impacted you and your work, um, in terms of maybe your own sensitivity? Um, 
Yeah, I do. I'll, I'll tell you a story that I recount in um, Hot Lights, Cold Steel. But I was, a, I think, in my second to last year of residency. Uh, and I had learned a lot and was getting very good at what I was doing. Um, I had worked a lot about besides the normal hours that we had to work as resident. I was moonlighting once or twice a week, so I wasn't uh, getting much sleep. And I, like they said, I was uh, operating on fumes. And I had a kid with a broken arm that I had to take care of in the emergency room one night. And kids typically break. It's a, a distal radial fracture, which is a common fracture in kids. And boy, I you know I must have done two or three a week uh, putting those back together. And it had all gotten to be routine to me. Uh, and I was in a hurry to get done because I had something else to do as soon as that was over with. And and it's funny that you brought this up because the guy who straightened me out was a Vietnam vet. Uh, and he oh. was a cast technician. And we were just working away on, uh, I think I, I had reduced the kid's fracture and was getting ready to get an x-ray and then put a cast on him. And I noticed that he had a tattoo on his arm. Mm. And it was three numbers. I can't now remember, like 509 or 607 or something. I said, Ski, what's uh, 509? He said, what's well, the 509th Infantry Division or whatever he was in? And I said, oh, were you in the, in the Army? He said, yeah. So were you in Vietnam? Yeah. And... Usually, as most of your listeners will know, guys who were in Vietnam and had a tough time don't really like to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I never, never knew. And I'd known Ski for three years. And he'd never even said a word about anything. So I had no idea he was in the Army. But he talked about, he was a corpsman. And he talked about what a tough time he had and that, that uh, he started to drift away and he was getting involved with drinking too much and drugs and that sort of thing. And until one day it dawned on him that, his patients needed him and that he wasn't just there to tape up bloody arms and to give people crutches. He was there to care for people. And he's, I think he was wise enough to know that he was speaking to me, that I had become a technician. Uh, I thought, you know, my job is to fix broken radiuses. Well, no, it's not. My job is to take care of sick and hurting people. And it, I mean, it, it really made me just stop cold in my tracks and think, my gosh, he's right. I've been, you know, I've been learning how to be a good technician and forgetting about how to be a doctor. And that mm-hmm. was a big, a big changing point in my life. When you say I forgot how to be a, you know, I needed to be a doctor and not just a technician. Could you explain what you mean for the, because I, I think I know what you mean, but for just the yeah. listener. Well, it was, you know, I, I kind of thought when these parents brought the child to me, my job is to take this radius, which was bent and make it straight again, and then I've done my job. Mm. Well, that's a big part of my job. But another part of my job is trying to make the little boy not be so scared of having to have an anesthetic and to relieve, you know, as a parent, uh, anytime your child is injured, you're worried about them. And I never um, wanted any part of that part of my job. I wanted to reduce the kid's fracture and leave. And it bothered Mm. me that I had to go talk to the parents and explain to them that I did this, did that, did that. I did my job. My job is putting the bones back together again. Uh, but that's not being a doctor. Being a doctor is to realize that you're taking care of a person, not a forearm. And that from the moment you see this child, you can help in their care and recovery by the, your demeanor and the way you treat them and the way you speak with them. So uh, I, after I had reduced this boy's fracture, went out and sat with the parents for quite a while. And, and what I learned is that it wasn't uh, to my detriment. 
I didn't later regret and said, well, I had to go spend half an hour with the parents, but I had to suck it up and do it anyway. It was enjoyable. I mean, it made me feel like a doctor again. You know, they, we talked about different things in their lives and their kids and how this little boy broke his arm, you know, what he was like. And it was, it, it really did change my outlook on being a doctor. So I think that's um, actually a really uh, important story because I think for me, I'm just reflecting on what I felt. I know you, you went through it, but I was just thinking about the, the fact that even in any field, you know, but especially medicine and in therapy, you're really just trying to help people, trying to help people day in, day out. And then sometimes we get distracted by the goal and then we need something to open us back up to why am I doing this? And, and what about the moments of, of this and, and that be a doctor, especially it's almost, it's so much more pressure than a therapist. It's a, not only are you fixing this kid's radius, but then I'm the healer. I'm not just the, the fixer. Okay. I'm not the, just the anesthesiologist. I'm, I'm coming and saying, Hey, here's what's going on. I'm explaining to you the process. Here's what I'm going to do. It's okay. You're going to feel good as new, you know, uh, talk, reassuring the parents. I mean, that is real healing because then not only does that kid have his arm fixed eventually, but you know, you've, you've done something that they won't forget. You've, you've humanized and, and, and help them along in their, their experience, which could be very scary, but to your average doctor, just another day at the office. Oh, fixing another arm, right? Yeah. You know, it's not scary to you, but it's, it's, it's interesting how, and I see that in therapy as well. Like, you know, people come in there, it's their first time in therapy. When we, we're in therapy every day, all day, right? Yeah. We got to remember these, yeah. these folks are, maybe they don't even tell anybody the stuff they're about to tell you. Maybe they have never told anyone, right? So. Some of this is the difference, and it sounds like I'm being nitpicky, but the difference between healing and curing, um, and the story is often told in medicine that if somebody breaks into your, if you come home one day and found that someone has broken into your house or your apartment and has trashed the place and robbed you and taken a lot of personal things, you are very, you're not just um, sad because of the financial loss. It's been a, you realize someone was in my house who you know, broke into my place and took my things and and if the police call you the next day and say, um, we have uh, recovered all your stolen goods, and if they return those to you, then you're cured, but you're not healed. Uh, you're cured because the, the lost items have been returned to you, but you're not healed. And if I can read one more part to you. This is at the end of the book. Um, so at the end of the book, uh, again, I'm trying not to give away too much, but yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a scene at, at the end of the book where this old doctor is lying in an emergency room and he's dying. And taking care of him is a young med student who, it's actually an intern, who really doesn't have all the tools and knowledge of how to be a good doctor, but is very caring. And, and he's looking at her and he's, he thinks about as he's watching her trying to do her best. These are his thoughts. She thinks she's not a good doctor because she hasn't memorized enough textbooks or performed enough surgeries. She is so painfully aware of what she lacks, but she forgets that what we long for when we are sick, grievously sick, mortally sick, is not a cure. We know it's too late for that. What we long for is a healing, an assurance that the human connection that seems about to be dissolved forever will somehow bridge the deep chasm we are about to cross. Scalpels can't affect that. Textbooks can't teach it. 
what compassion, the simple unaffected love of our fellow man can, the knowledge that someone cares, that we are not alone, gestures, touches, smiles. That is why I love books. I mean, that is just beautiful. And you, you know, it's, you, you wouldn't find that in a textbook and it's true. It's this, it's this human, I don't know what you call it, a characteristic that we're capable of, which is this connection, this, this ability to hopefully connect to somebody in a deep way past our job, whatever the job may be. And, you know, that's, that's something that can't be emphasized enough. I mean, I've talked about this statistic before, but I'm just going to throw throw it out there. This is changing the mood a little bit. But I was reading back in the I was reading a study about doctors who were sued, okay, for malpractice, and the study's conclusion was that the only factor between the doctors who were sued for malpractice and the doctors that won't weren't sued for malpractice, however, who had also made mistakes medically with their patients and maybe a wrong prescription or a mistake during surgery. The difference was always, this is the factor, was that the people that were not sued for a problem spent on average 10 to 20 minutes more with their patients than the doctors who were sued. And I thought about that and I was, cause I was thinking, oh, well, it's gotta be, you know, this, this doctor screwed this thing up and there I'm so mad and doesn't matter what he says. We're, that's it. We're going for the money. And I thought about that. And the, the study was saying, it, it was sort of concluding in, in sort of this odd way of going, well, this is not what we thought at all either. <laughs> but I thought that 15, 20 minutes that that doctor spent apologizing, you know, for this and fixing it and working on a plan with the family that mattered more to them than any lawsuit, any money, any anything, because they felt this person cares. They care about us. They want to help us, even though they might've made an error we we forgive them right and that's the human human aspect of it where the the uh, correlation of of evidence was that the doctors who weren't spending the time with the patients who also made a mistake were getting sued had possibly gone like oh crap cover my ass i'm not going to talk to this patient's family yeah. you know oh no what if i disclose too much you know or something and then they did get sued because the patient felt you know abandoned or uh, you know not heard in a way. So I, I don't know. It's just stuck in my brain. Forever. When I was a resident, um, you know, as a resident, you have oh, 10 or 20 or 30, I don't know, more uh, attending physicians over you who are in all different, I was in orthopedic surgery. So in all different areas of orthopedics, and there were some world renowned surgeons uh, who I worked under. And almost all surgeons will eventually be sued. I mean, it's, it's just a fact of life. Um, but the, of all the surgeons that were on staff, the ones who were the best surgeons, the most well-known, they had many more suits than this one guy who, I won't say his name, but those of us all trained with him. He was not a bad surgeon, but he just was nowhere near as good as these other guys. But he was so personable. He had never been sued. Uh, and he was just a good hardworking, honest guy who cared about his patients and did his best. And if occasionally a mistake arose, he went back, as you said, he'd go back and said to him, here's the mistake that was made. You know, I'm terribly sorry that this happened and here's what we're going to do to fix it. And uh, he was just a generally nice guy. And that came across to his patients. 
Yeah, well, I'm glad you 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 saw that story, and and it's interesting. Just in my experience in mental health, I find that the the best therapists after their first three or four years of practice hardly have to advertise because the people people just tell everyone they know about about the the therapist and how they help them in the community, and, and then I look at therapists who are five ten years in their career. And they're sending out all these advertisements and I'm thinking, hmm, you know, uh, I have a therapist friend of mine who, (laughs) this is kind of funny just to bring this up, just their attitude is so genuine and so caring that they have zero internet presence, like nothing, not even a website. (laughs) They, 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 they have no signage and this person is perpetually too full of clients. And, and, and I was just, that's a, from my field, but I just thought about that and I thought, what is it? And it's, and it, it's their humbleness. It's their attitude. It's if they make a mistake, they make it right. Uh, it's not about them. It's about the patient and they're honest. And I, and I think, um, that's another piece of the sensitivity. Uh, well, I, I think it's the same in medicine. Um, things are a little bit different in medicine because now a lot of times patients don't have a choice about who they're going to see if they're in a some sort of directed program. They have to see this person or they have to see that. But I practiced long enough that I was uh, before those times. And clearly for almost every good doctor that I knew, if they would look at their referral sources, it was almost always from previous patients. Um, you know, it would there'd be some referrals from other doctors, but it certainly wasn't from advertising. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that, that is a, a good comparison. Um, I'm curious, um, I'm curious about the audience. Um, and I know that you've had multiple books out, but, um, what has been some of the feedback you've received from your first couple of books? I know this book is just, just came out here on September uh, 1st, uh, of 2021, but, what is some of the feedback you've received on your previous books? I'm just curious. Well, as you can imagine, the, many of my early readers were in the health field mm-hmm. um, because one, the first book was about a young construction worker trying to get into med school and the other is about a resident trying to get through his residency. Um, so I would have a lot of um, my readers from that community. But also, the, uh, there's a great interest in the public in the medical field. So as given, look at all the TV shows that are on now that are medically related. So those are, uh, I think both of those fields tend to be involved. In this book, All Bleeding Stops, um, it's, I, I say to people all the time, this is really not a book about uh, a war. It's a book about a doctor. So even though it takes place in the Vietnam War, it's not... It, it's not a war book, at least in my estimation, it's not. It's about a doctor, and I happen to choose the war because I think it's easier to exemplify the issues and difficulties that he had. So in these first couple of months since the book has been published, I've been pleased that uh, most of the readers that have written reviews or contacted me, I, as far as I can tell, are lay people. They're, they're neither doctors nor uh, military people. Now, i I think the the publishers and those people who know the business have said to me, well, you need to 
do what you can to encourage readership among health people and military people. And I get it because it's related to them. But I think it's nice that, that I hope anyway, the message is getting out to people who are not just doctors, nurses, or veterans. That is great to hear. Um, and I, and I'm hoping it's inspiring people to, I mean, young people, especially to think about the career, but also just for people to, to have interest in it in, in a way that really humanizes it. Um, because like you said, there's all these shows, but some uh, of the shows are a little bit fixed, <laughs> fictitious. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. I'm just, I'm laughing at every now and then I'll turn on one of those shows and I think that this these, it's a scene that I've now seen 10 times happen, you know, some interaction between a doctor and a nurse. I thought, I never see stuff. That stuff never happens. And the other thing on those shows is that there's always a plane crash or a bomb going off or something. And, and much of medicine is long hours with, with not great emergencies happening. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not a doctor, so I, I wouldn't know. But I've, from my friends who are, tell me the same. Um, there's the, the TV show has got to cram it all in there for the drama <laughs> yeah. that gets us yeah. excited. Um, I, something that was interesting, I looked at this, uh, outside of your book, your publicist sent me that the, uh, some of the proceeds of the, this book are going to support mental health in the military and the medical fields and the PTSD foundation and some other place. I wasn't quite sure what that place is. PB. PB Abati. Okay. I don't know about that. What is that? Well, that is a, um, it's for veterans with PTSD, uh, started by uh, a young Marine who's, uh, I, I believe he was a sergeant, Abate was, uh, it was named after him. And he started this thing, it, it's, it involves taking veterans uh, sort of out of their milieu uh, to a, a place to get away from it all in Montana or somewhere where it's, uh, they're able to um, abstract themselves from the things they've been through. So it's, it's just a, a group that tries to treat um, veterans with PTSD. I had tried very hard to, I wanted, well, first of all, I believe so much in this issue that I wanted to donate some of the proceeds to people, uh, specifically corpsmen, nurses, doctors, who were ex-military and were suffering because of the experiences they had. And as near as I can tell, and I'd love it if any of your listeners tell me I'm wrong, but I can't find anyone that's any group that specializes in that. There's plenty of PTSD groups, um, and and the two that I mentioned, the PTSD Foundation of America and PB Abate. Um, I sort of researched them, and they take all comers. They're generally military people, but they don't limit it to corpsmen or doctors. But there there are some corpsmen and doctors that are. A part of this. So I just wanted to, oh, I want to be sure that I was walking the walk, not just talking the talk. I appreciate that. That was, it was an interesting feature. I, um, I've speak to a lot of authors and I hadn't actually seen that before. So I, I think that's really a good, another incentive for people to check out the book, um, especially this winter. Um, yeah. So let's see. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I feel like we've previewed the book pretty well, and we've talked a little bit about uh, your philosophy as a physician. Um, it, and we've talked a little bit to the audience, but I'm wondering what would you say is maybe 
something you would say to a listener about if they were thinking about picking up one of your books? What's what's a what's an incentivizer or or something interesting that you would like to share about that? Well, when you say books plural, it makes it a little bit harder because there's different true. things would bring okay. different. You know, the first book, uh, Blue Collar Blue Scrubs, I was amazed at how many non-medical people found benefit in the book because it, you know, it's about a young kid sort of struggling against the odds to succeed. And so I, it's nice. um, I'm sure you get feedback from your listeners and I like getting feedback from my readers, people saying, thank you for encouraging me in my effort to whether to get into med school or whatever it is. Um, As for the first two books being memoirs, you know, medically related, this one is different since it's fiction. Uh, but I think it, it touches on issues that are important to everybody. You know, we all want to have some meaning in our life and we all aren't sure exactly how to do that. We're never quite sure about the price that we pay for the things that we do. Uh, do we really want to dedicate ourselves to something noble? We all, you know, if you ask that to most questions, most people, they'd say yes, but how much are you willing to sacrifice to do that? And I don't mean to imply that those are easy questions to answer because they're not. I mean, we'd all like to do wonderful things. We'd all like to help the poor and help the homeless and hungry. And, and yet not many people can step up and sell every single thing they own and give it to the poor. And, uh, and I, again, I'm not suggesting you should. I struggle with those issues, too. Uh, and this is the story about a young man struggling with his issue of his vocation. Uh, how much does he give? And if he if he gives too much, uh, I think eventually that works to the detriment of his attempting to give. He becomes incapable of functioning. Yes, and I think that's an important sort of thing to highlight is that um, in your books, you're talking honestly about the human condition. And even this fiction book, you're talking about things that face everybody, no matter what profession they're in. But so is it's relatable, but yet, you know, it's talking about a thing that most people haven't been in. Most readers, you know, have not been in Vietnam and been a combat medic. So there's, there's some interesting elements there of the historical fiction uh, part of it. But it's, I think the, the core value of your of your belief system of what's important in life and to wrestle with these questions, uh, I think is, I think a very good reason for people to check out the books, especially this book, all bleeding stops. So yeah, that would be my hope. I, there's the things that we, or that I addressed in the book um, are applicable. I think not just to doctors uh, or people in the healthcare field, uh, I hope that I've raised questions that will that will help people to ask of themselves in whatever line of work they're in. So I know we've talked a lot about um, the book without revealing too much of the plot, and you know, war and people dying and combat surgery and and the PTSD that uh, you know was experienced. It does sound like a lot of doom and gloom, but I know that's not all that is there for the book. So can you tell us a little bit, a little preview about um, the uplifting side of things? Well, there there is a lot of um, difficulties that the main the protagonist Matthew Barrett goes through, but throughout the whole thing, he is searching or he's almost looking for 
redemption or to find his way home in a metaphoric sense. And he does find his way home at the end. I think many of his questions about life and his profession are answered, um, perhaps not the way that he anticipated, perhaps not in the way that readers anticipated. But I hope the takeaway message from it overall, the, the Daniel Ma, would be one of feeling uplifted and um, oh, illuminated, maybe being instructed or, or feeling that we've come away with a new understanding of the difficulties, not just that doctors face, but that we all face. Wonderful. And on that note, um, I think we're getting close to the end here of the interview. And uh, you can get this book so far on Amazon. Is there any other book stores that are selling it yet? Oh, yeah. Barnes & Noble is. Okay. Uh, as far as I, almost all the online retailers, I have it. Uh, Indie Books uh, has it. Um, and hopefully your local bookstore, but I, I can't speak for sure about that. I know the online places are. Sure. Well, your local bookstore can order it so because it is yes. a major publisher. I just wanted to make sure that... Um, there's multiple places to find it. So I will be actually putting some of the links to where you can uh, purchase the book in the show notes of this episode. And you just have to scroll down and click on it right there. And I'll also be uh, letting people check out your website, which is michaeljcollinsmd.com. And they can follow your work uh, on that platform. Wonderful. Well, it's been just a pleasure having you on the show. And I just thank you for writing this book. And um, I haven't read your other books yet, but uh, they're interesting to me already being in uh, the psychology field. Um, but I, I just appreciate your work and sharing with uh, us younger generations of healthcare workers and just people out there about your stories. And of course, writing this um, fictional story uh, as well. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Paul, and I'm happy to be on your show. Thanks for asking me. And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. If you are a therapist and are looking to become EMDR trained, I would recommend EMDR Training Solutions. They are an amazing group of people that provide trainings online and eventually in person to help you become EMDR trained and eventually EMDRIA certified. You can use the code INTENTIONAL, that's the word INTENTIONAL, to get $100 off if you purchase a training, especially if it's your first training. A little bit about what I've been up to, I am almost a full Emdria consultant and I can provide consultation hours and have a group going every Wednesday. So let me know if you would like to be a part of that consultation group. Also, I have a course online called What Do We Do Now for the Parents of Young Adults, which you can find on Udemy. There will be a link in the show notes. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling Grand Rapids and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guests, and while these are based upon literature they have read, their experience in their respective fields, and personal experiences, these viewpoints should not be viewed as a definitive opinion on any subject. 
Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in crisis, please dial 911 or the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color, feeling down, stressed out, or overwhelmed? Text Steve, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know you could support your local bookstore by shopping at bookshop.org? You can order online from the comfort of your own home while supporting a local bookstore near you that is brick and mortar. If you are not a member of a mental health counselors association, I highly recommend that you join, such as the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, which you can find on the internet, or any other state which you live in. There are a lot of things that go into keeping counseling available to the public. So I really encourage you to get involved in your local organization. Until next time, I'm wishing everyone a safe and peaceful week. Mm